Welcome to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to educating and empowering men to address erectile dysfunction, improve confidence, and enhance the satisfaction in their relationships. This podcast is brought to you by ErectionIQ.com. Learn more at ErectionIQ.com. Welcome to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. I am Mark Goldberg, Certified Sex Therapist. I am deeply passionate about working with men like you to help resolve their ED. Welcome back to another episode of the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. Today we are joined by Dr. Rainey Hurwitz. Dr. Hurwitz is a first-year urology resident at Emory University School of Medicine. She is passionate about sexual health and wellness, and in particular about destigmatizing conversations around sex between patient and provider. Dr. Hurwitz, thank you very much for being with us today. It's a pleasure to be on. Thank you for having me. Okay, so what we want to tackle today is the role of vibrators in treating uh, sexual dysfunctions of all types, and in particular, around erectile dysfunction. So to get us started, could you just give us an overview of the different types of vibrators that are available to patients? Absolutely. Uh, I think it's super important to point out before I dive into different types of vibrators, this is definitely a, a newer area of medicine. Um, there's not a ton of guidelines around how these things should be prescribed. And so there is a a group of working physicians who are kind of using their best clinical judgment to kind of guide recommendations around these things. But there's still so much research that needs to be done. But we do have a pretty good idea of how they can be implemented in a lot of different ways. Um, but plainly, there are, you know, in general, when people think of vibrators, they think of the this kind of um, image of usually like a Hitachi magic wand toy vibrator. That's kind of the like, image a lot of people get in their heads. And the, tr- the truth is that vibrators are really just a, a tool. And I like to use the phrase sex tool because I think it's way more encompassing and truthful of what we actually use them for. And, you know, people of all genders use tools in all kinds of aspects of their lives. And they use them in the kitchen. They use them from their toolbox in their garage. And no one seems to bat an eye when you when you call something a tool. And so I'm a huge proponent of using the term sex tools because I think it really destigmatizes and kind of takes some of that, like, childish ick away that some people can have when deciding whether or not they want to use sex tools for therapeutic things or for pleasure or whatever they want to use them for. So just generally, there are tools that can be used on the outside. Those are kind of external stimulation devices. They can be in a shape where they can fit in your palm. Uh, They can be in like a small bullet shape. Um, Those are usually meant to be placed externally. And so on someone with a vulva or vagina, um, sometimes people will often, most commonly, they think of traditionally applying them externally to the glands clitoris. But if you are someone with a penis, there are vibrators that are of a similar shape. Those palm vibrators can be applied to the perineum or the gooch or the taint, the area between the scrotum and the anus. Um, And there are also kind of these newer vibrator designs for people with a penis that are specifically designed for a phallus or um, like a, that's kind of the medical term for a penis. Um, And they're designed to kind of encompass the shaft and and include it so that you can stimulate the nerve fibers on the distal or most far reaching end of the penis. And that's especially helpful and useful for people who are in recovery uh, after surgery for prostate cancer, or they're recovering from treatment from various urological cancers, um, is to encourage that nerve propagation distally and try to really uh, encourage good nerve regrowth after that surgery. Otherwise, there are you know, really no, this entire shelf I have behind me is all kinds of different shapes that sex tools can be in. And so it's really kind of a a 
dealer's choice, create your own adventure. There are some that people have dubbed, you know, the rabbit because it has an internal component that people will use in their vagina and an external component that comes in contact with the clitoris. There's also uh, penile rings or constriction bands that are used to help with erections. And those can be uh, placed around the penis, or around the penis and scrotum. And those can have, also have little vibrating components on them as well for the user's pleasure. And also if their partner um, is the way that the angle of the position works. So there's really a ton of uh, different shapes, sizes, uses for vibrators. And we're really just beginning to see the creativity come out in ways that people are thinking of new designs for vibrators that are much less intimidating. They're not just pink and purple anymore. They are making them in colors that are more accessible for people that aren't just women. Uh, so it's a really exciting time. So Dr. Roberts, to that end, I have the impression that vibrators have traditionally been viewed as a pleasure sex tool, much more than a medical intervention sex tool. Can you speak to what the role of a vibrator or other sex tool would be from a medical standpoint? Absolutely. And this is actually a really interesting question that kind of speaks to some of the, the, the way I got into this research was my master's uh, bioethics research was in history and philosophy of science. And a lot of it was kind of researching the history of sexual medicine and the way that uh, medicine went about treating sexual issues. And one of the things I, I learned is that actually vibrators were used in medicine for a lot of different things that were not sexual, like acid reflux and um, for edema and for things that may not have been medically sound. But as soon as the Industrial Revolution hit in the early 1900s, people got electricity in their homes or medical offices and doctors were like, gee, this is great. I don't know what it does, but they were applying it to all different areas in the body. And there are some academic scholars who have done, you know, sufficient research and have a lot of theories that the pelvic massage that a lot of doctors were using as a prescribed treatment for conditions like female hysteria may have been augmented with a vibrator that was often, you know, clinically just like hanging from the ceilings in these medical offices to kind of speed along the process. And so that is a theory that is, is definitely some people agree with it. Some people are like, no, doctors weren't like masturbating women. And that's not what the theory is really at all. It's that it was like so non-medical. People were like, please, like taking their wives to the doctor being like, she's acting crazy. Like do your medical treatment that's not sexual at all. That's kind of what their theory is. But essentially what happened is in the 1920s, these vibrators started appearing in stag films or pornography. And so it kind of changed vibrators from a medical device in any context to being associated with like sexual deviancy and, you know, pornography and like lewdness. And so they really kind of like fell out of any sort of like medical usage for a really long time. And then in recent years, things you've seen kind of other specialties have started to use vibrators for things kind of like for um, pain control. I think I saw recently like dentists are using them to vibrate like a different part of someone's mouth while they're doing a dental procedure to kind of help with pain and like lower the um, pain medication requirements for patients. Um, I know that there's various other kind of tactile stimulation things like that that are that are happening in the world. And so most recently, uh, myself and a group of three other researchers at us out of Cedar sinai this was the team that I worked with, we sought to kind of investigate, you know, what research has been done out there about the medical uses of vibrators and can we, do we have a way, like a reason to be, you know, meeting them as a medical tool or should we be prescribing them? And so what we found was the most overwhelming evidence is that vibrators can 
pretty, without a doubt, treat sexual dysfunction, especially in people with a vulva. There um, is a study from, I believe, um, Struck at all, where they studied the Betty Dodson method, which is using a Hitachi magic wand and targeted sex therapy. And 98% of participants had a orgasm. And these were all people who had been anorgasmic for an average of 12 years or prior. And so that is, that is very strong evidence. And there were more papers to follow that that kind of suggested the same thing. So no one's really surprised that vibrators are helping with sexual function. But what is really interesting and where urologists are more interested in kind of paying attention to this discussion is the role of vibrators is an augmentation for treating stress urinary incontinence, which is common in people who have had children, um, like by vagina, vaginal birth, um, or is common in people who have had pelvic surgeries, like a prostatectomy for prostate cancer, or really any kind of surgery for their urinary tract, any kind of instrumentation in the pelvic floor that can, you know, weaken that area. And so what we have found is that the use of this external, you know, pressing of a vibrator from the outside promotes these involuntary pelvic floor contractions. And what that means is, I'm sure some of you have maybe heard of Kegels before. They're like this awful exercise that no one knows how to do. And that doctors are like, well, just look up your Kegel exercises and that'll stop, make you stop peeing on yourself. And it's not just this magical cure. It requires a lot of participation and it requires a lot of understanding of one's body and having this voluntary control of a muscle that most of us have never thought about in our entire lives, even though it is really the basement to the house of our entire abdomen holding up all of our organs. It does a lot of work. And so what external vibration can do is it can promote these involuntary pelvic floor contractions and essentially be a, a fitness like augmentation to, to help you do those Kegel exercises and to promote pelvic floor tone. Um, and this is really helpful for people who have low pelvic floor tone. Now there's also people who have high pelvic floor tone, and that's a separate issue that vibrators might not be a good thing for. Those are like people who are constipated or retaining urine or something because they have a really tight pelvic floor, a vibrator might not be a good solution for that person because it'll probably t increase the tone of their pelvic floor as well. But for people who have laxity in their pelvic floor, for whatever reason, it can be a really useful, we think and hope, um, well tolerated because it's really minimally invasive and it's also fairly inexpensive. There's lots of really inexpensive vibrators people can find that are body safe online. They're very accessible. And I think that really now that we're kind of gathering this body of evidence that we can tell patients like, no, this is actually medically beneficial to you. I'm telling you as your doctor that I recommend that you use this. Hope What we're hoping to do is develop pelvic floor physical therapy home treatment regimens for people. Because right now in the urology guidelines, pelvic floor physical therapy is one of the recommendations for stress urinary incontinence. And that involves teaching of Kegel exercises. And another exercise that our um, treatment is that is kind of in the process of being researched for incontinence is biofeedback, which is where you place a probe and you tell the body, you contract your pelvic floor muscles and you can see on a screen that you, where you contracted. And so some vibrators, smart vibrators and smart sex tools can have this ability to be able to send data from pressure sensors. So you can actually use a vibrator like the Lioness as a biofeedback tool in your house. So I'm really optimistic about the ways that we can kind of utilize these devices to help people with home pelvic floor rehab. And then there's so much to be discovered and researched in the world of men. Like we know very, very little. There's very few studies that have been done on erectile dysfunction in men with vibration, but pretty much all of them say that it's it's worth a shot. And so what we really need are some really solid prospective trials 
Um, and I think especially in the world of prostate cancer rehabilitation is where it's especially promising because we have started to really get a good idea about what is working in penile rehab and what is seeming to work is adding on a lot of different things and working on a lot of different modalities, like using one of the traction devices to kind of stretch the skin while you like add PDE fives to promote good blood flow like Cialis. And then something like a vibrator is helping with that nerve propagation. So taking a multimodal approach, I think is really our best bet with that. And I also just think it, it doesn't really hurt to incorporate a tool into the bedroom or into your personal rituals or life. And just to see like what you notice with your body, learning about your body is really important. I don't think that a lot of us do it very easily. And so that's the long story short of the medical indications of vibrating. It's fascinating just to like think about you know two two points that you raised. One is that these were not originally pleasure tools; mm -hmm. they were originally medical tools. That's really <laughs> where they got their start. And and it sounds like now they're making a comeback. So that kind of struck me. And then the other point that you made is just the applications of these vibrators in different areas of medicine. I was totally not aware of that. I kind of assumed that they'd be limited to sexual function no. challenges, if any, but it sounds like there are potential applications in many other areas of medicine. I think pain is a really interesting avenue, especially um, something I didn't touch too much on is like pelvic pain. And the the theory that we have in our, in our paper and in the, the few papers that have looked into this is that the temporary key on the temporary desensitization of a vibrator that some people are like, oh, vibrators desensitize the clitoris and then you'll never be able to have an orgasm ever again. Well, that's just simply not true, but it, it will make you spoiled. And so you have to learn how to practice in other positions with other modalities if you'd like to do that. So I just think it's, it's, it's so interesting how like throughout history, things really change. And we really, we really didn't know a lot about, about the potential for what vibrators can do. And with the pain specifically, I think the temporary desensitization and then positive associations with feelings of pleasure can really help people who have vaginal vulvar pain we've seen. And then I, th I don't think that there's been too much research that is done with male pelvic pain, um, which is sometimes seen with things like chronic prostatitis um, or uh, bladder pain syndromes. But I definitely think it's worth a shot. I'm very pro researching anything with a vibrator because it's very well tolerated by people. <laughs> So the side effects are, are, are limited. We'll come to that in a couple moments, though. So, Dr. Roberts, are there any specific types of sexual dysfunction that we know vibrators are more effective at addressing? I know you mentioned anorgasmia, you know, around, like, you know, for women around the vulva. Are there other areas that we know that there seems to be a benefit or some utility, even if it's anecdotal at this point? Yeah, I think there are definitely studies that have shown that vibrators help with perceived sexual satisfaction in people, like regardless of gender. I think that uh, the way that we classify sexual dysfunction right now is into four categories. And so usually there are issues with arousal, desire, orgasm, and pain. And so the desire component is, you know, they talk about responsive desire versus spontaneous desire. And so I think that vibrators can really help with people's responsive desire because people might not be, you know, sexually interested in a moment. And then you kind of like, it kind of can help set a mood sometimes for someone who is maybe like, I'm so stressed. I don't know how to like turn myself off. So in that sense, you know, anecdotally, I think that 
with desire, it can be kind of like a tool in your toolbox. But I do think that there are lots of other tools for helping sexual desire, including there are, you know, obviously doing things like sex therapy, but the medications that people can take that can help with libido, um, especially for like women's sexual dysfunction or female sexual dysfunction. They heard a couple of medications you can do. And we talked about issues with orgasm. Uh, and then pain, I think, is, is really something that hasn't been explored enough and there where there is really a lot of potential arousal. Um, so with erectile function, um, arousal is kind of where you put the actual like fill, like the category of the filling of the corpora with blood. And we do know that when you apply a vibrator, um, Dr. Kimberly Lovey, she is a radiologist who does really interesting work. She's done clitoral ultrasounds. And so you can actually see in the ultrasounds, like the flaccid clitoris versus the erect clitoris. And it's very comparable, you know, homologous anatomic structures to the penile, penile corpora cavernosum and spongiosum. It's very, very similar in female genitalia. And so we really are in, in the womb, we all start off as, as female. And then if you happen to have the presence of the Y chromosome, then you build all the extra male stuff. And so you get extra cavernosal tissue that'll respond to nitrous oxide, but we also have the, that cavernosal tissue. So things that have, you know, his work for erectile dysfunction in men in, in theory and in, in practice in some cases also work in women as well. And so we're just now figuring ways out to kind of target those therapies to women in more direct ways. So I know that a lot of our listeners are going to be interested in particular when it comes to uh, the ejaculatory disorders, and I would say around delayed or anejaculation. Because we're talking about the this you know sex tool vibrator as a a stimulating factor. And you know a lot of times or at least a way to look at uh, delayed ejaculation is that there's some lack of stimulation that would lead somebody to ejaculation. Do we know anything about the role of a vibrator in helping to facilitate a either a speeding up of ejaculation or helping to resolve an ejaculation? I do need to do like a quick literature review on this, but I think when I was doing the review for our vibrators paper that was surrounding like female populations, there are instances of um, I think even like electrical stimulation um, where you were able to kind of like collect semen samples and promote a, like a ejaculation. And I am not positive if they have done vibratory studies in men about this, but I know one of my colleagues, Pranjal, is currently doing a similar study to the one that I did about vibrators in women with vibrators in men. So hopefully soon we'll have a better idea about one of, the, one of those things. But I definitely don't think that it, I think that something that people get a little tied up on is an ejaculation versus anorgasmia and orgasm can exist in the with the absence of ejaculation and that's the alternative is also true people can can have ejaculation and then maybe have a dull or not per, not perceived orgasm so dr Rose, are there any drawbacks or risks associated with using vibrators i know you mentioned previously that there certainly is a misnomer out there about desensitizing you know, certain parts of the body with the use of a vibrator. Are there any other known drawbacks or risks to using a vibrator? I would say, I don't know if I would even call it a risk, but it has the potential to be certainly habit forming. And I don't know if that's necessarily problematic because I think for a lot of people, they have lived their lives not thinking that pleasure was like a achievable option for them or going to be like a lived reality for them. And so it's kind of like a don't deny yourself something that like is is an is a natural physiological response 
that maybe you need some extra assistance to get to. That's not anything that like requires any shame or people shouldn't, shouldn't feel bad about that in any sense. I think what, what can be frustrating, especially to partners of people who use vibrators is they'll feel like, oh, well, this is replacing me. I don't feel like I'm able to pleasure you like this magic machine can. And my advice to those people is to try to think about these tools as your tools that you own, (laughs) that you are the one who gets to decide how they are used and you can use them in your favor. And I think that all they really have the potential to do is to help you help your partner. And I, I think when people see the reactions of their partners, when they kind of enthusiastically embrace sex tools and are like, you know, reaching for them and their partner is like, what? I didn't, I didn't think that was going to be our life. They're pleasantly surprised. And so I think, you know, because we omit conversations about sex and vibrators from our everyday discourse, we're not just like hanging out with the guys talking about the vibrators that we're buying for like our wives it's what is omitted is automatically othered and thought of as weird and abnormal. And so I think that the more that people just normalize these conversations as like, uh, Oh yeah, that's the secret weapon. Like my wife's doing great. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I, I really, really appreciate that because something that I, I say to a lot of people who um, you know, have female partners um, is that like, it's not, it's not, you can't outcompete it. It's a machine. Right. It's 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 designed to do this like you're designed to do this to an extent, but either it's going to be your best friend or it's going to outcompete you. And you really got to make a choice of how you're going to relate to these tools. And also, like, Uh, you have a heartbeat and a brain. (laughs) And like (laughs) people forget that, like that goes miles. And so (laughs) vibrators can only go so far and like they run out of batteries. They're there for you, but it's not the same as the interpersonal, like emotional bond that you have with a human being. And so no one's partners are getting put in the shadows because of a piece of vibrating plastic. That's right. So what would be some of the things that somebody should consider um, when going to choose a vibrator i understand that each uh you know possible application and sexual dysfunction may be different but generally speaking what are some of the things that people should consider totally good question i think that first instinct should be that if you like see something that automatically looks like it is uncomfortable just for you to look at then that is not something that you should put an investment in because oftentimes a lot of the things that these are investments, they can, they can be on the pricier side. Should you choose, they can also be pretty inexpensive. Um, but you want to, when you look at something, you want to feel comfort with it before it arrives at your doorstep. And so a lot of times, you know, going to sex shops where you can actually like hold things and talk to the people who work there because they know a lot. They're very well versed in all of the things that, that these tools can do. And, in a way, they are, you know, kind of their own kind of clinicians having consults with patients. And so I think they, they know a lot about sexual emergencies. And I think doctors could, could learn a lot from people who work in sex shops and sex workers as well. But I think that first making sure that you, like, you are attracted to the product and you're like, that looks like something I can use. Maybe that is a color issue. So find something black. Maybe that is a shape issue. It looks really phallic and I, I don't want it to look like a penis because I feel threatened by that and I want it to look like a small stone because that doesn't look like a penis and that makes me feel like a little bit more at ease. So maybe go with that. Or if you would like to, you know, you have maybe 
either used a performance ring in the past, like a um, constriction band, or are interested in experimenting with something like a cock ring or a penile ring. Um, the ones that have vibrators attached to them are a great way to experiment with vibration um, and also kind of tamper any erectile dysfunction or sometimes um, anxiety with like you using toys for the first time. Um, so that's a kind of a great way to like marry them in the beginning and see like, what can these things do together? I think some practical considerations to have is like, is this waterproof? Like, can I bring this in the shower? Can I bring this in a bathtub? Does it require batteries? Um, so I think a lot, most things now are rechargeable and a lot of them are waterproof. But it's also really important to think about if it is compatible with different lubricants. And so some toys, um, like silicone toys, are not compatible with some silicone lubricants. And so you have to just kind of look into the product details to see what uh, lubricants is not compatible compatible with, but just as like a general rule, water based lubricants are usually safe with most uh, sex tools. And then um, safety wise, besides that, I think the materials are important. I think you know doesn't vibrate, but glass tools are always you can like put them in the dishwasher um, or like stuff like you can boil them. Those are really easy to clean. Buying and investing in a toy cleaner when you purchase your sex tool is a, is just a great thing to do. I have like a foaming one and um, people can you know, like, I've had some patients who've told me that they've like put it in their shower. And so when they're showering, they'll like clean their sex tools and then line them all up to dry. And so there's a bunch of different things. I think what's a great idea is just typing into Google and saying like types of sex toys and just looking at what looks interesting to you and kind of pr pricing out what's the most expensive version of this and what is maybe the, you know, I want to try this out, but I'm not convinced that this is the model or design or modality of sex tool that I want to pursue. And so I don't want to make a big investment. I'm just going to spend like 30 bucks. But if you really like that one, then maybe you're like, oh, I'm going to, you know, upgrade to this much nicer one. So for, for somebody who's new to using a vibrator, um, they may be apprehensive or whatnot. What do you, how do you coach a patient um, in that situation about how they should engage with a vibrator? And to make this a little simpler, let's just assume that we're, we're talking about, let's say uh, they want to start with a bullet or like an egg or something along like it's, you know, handheld, hand size or whatnot. How do you talk that patient into what steps they should take uh, how do they keep with it, not to get discouraged? Yeah, I think it's really important to have, you know, think about your expectations before you go into this. And I think one of the priorities should be using your tool alone before you ever use it with the partner, because there's really no way for you to understand what your body responds well to without you having kind of figured it out by yourself first. So that way you can communicate it and maybe demonstrate it to your partner, which can be kind of a fun form of foreplay for some people, um, kind of like a sexual show and tell type of thing. That's something that I like to tell patients is that I think you should set aside a, a substantial block of time, like maybe an hour or so for you to, you know, devote to yourself, whether you want to go to the shower or in your bedroom, and you want to have maybe some sort of, you know, audio erotica or visual stimulus, there's something that you enjoy watching, you know, do what you want to do and don't feel pressured that you need to have an orgasm. That is not the goal. The goal is to feel comfortable settling into like allowing yourself to receive pleasure and not feel shameful thoughts about, you know, self-touch, which I think a lot of us are programmed with. And so that 
if that is just your first goal for your first solo session, I think that is a fantastic goal. The goal does not have to be, you know, some fireworks, 10 out of 10 orgasm. I think the the real goal is comfort with self and and better understanding of your own body and then kind of self-experimentation. And that usually points people in a direction of like, oh, I really enjoy this thing. And so then the next time when they're involved with the partner, they can kind of demonstrate with them, show them how to use it. And it opens up this whole new Pandora's box, but this partner can maybe try new things with their own creativity and it becomes this kind of collaborative experience. Yeah. Step one is, is, you know, people need to learn for themselves mm-hmm. and usually on, on their own, what works for them. It is very difficult to do this as a starting point in a partnered setting. Absolutely. As, as your patients um, transition to trying to incorporate this with a partner, how do you talk to them about communicating this with a partner? Do, do patients often, do they talk about this first when they first bring a tool like this into the bedroom on their own? Are they informing their partners as a warm up, Or is this something that like once a patient figures out what works for them, they then take that step to say, by the way, I have this cool little device that seems to work for me. <laughs> like, let, me <laughs> let me introduce that now. So I kind of uh, will, you know, tease it out like person per person. If they say, you know, like, I don't think my partner would be comfortable with me doing this. I go, well, this is, you know, your body and you get to make decisions about what you do with your body in private. And so I'm not going to be the one to police this recommendation that I have for you, but totally do whatever you want. If you, you know, want to eventually share this with your partner because it's something that's important to you, I think some ways that you can have conversations about it are, you know, when you get home from the doctor that day, just be like, you know, I learned something really interesting. And I try to provide patients with after visit, um, like very easy to understand literature that I've written, uh, essentially just explaining the medical role for vibrators and why this is something that while, you know, kind of showered in shame and stigma is actually medically beneficial and, and, you know, inexpensive, um, which I think like really gets a lot of people listening because they're like, Oh, I don't have to pay for a medication. And my wife has been peeing on herself for the last like 20 years. Like, and so I really try to kind of phrase it as like a, this is another way that we can help you improve your quality of life. And, you know, there's so many things that we, we give, erectile dysfunction medication to men to improve their quality of life. And we want them to be able to have sexually fulfilling lives. And so I kind of see this in a very similar way as kind of prescribing pleasure, which we, we do very willingly in urology. It's like Viagra is candy. It's given to everyone. And so it's um, while it, while it definitely can be challenging, I think it's really important to just, sometimes it takes reps um, with, with patients and like, with their partners as well. Like, you know, maybe the first conversation doesn't go super well and then they have to you know, try again and be like, Hey, this is something really important to me. And I've actually noticed a lot of improvement and I want you to be a part of this because I feel like maybe if I could do this with you and, you know, have this be a part of our routine, that this would better both of us. And like, really, you know, can, you can shine just as much here. There's room for, there's room for everyone to shine here. Um, but it's really just kind of about, I think, establishing that uh, no one is doing anything wrong. And that there, this wasn't like some sort of, oh, well, because you weren't able to be satisfied the regular way, this is like how we have to do it now. You're, it's like you're so unsatisfied that you need to get prescribed a vibrator. It's like, no, it's actually 
we should probably have been prescribing vibrators to most people for a long time because everyone ignores their pelvic floor, like men included. Everyone has a pelvic floor. And I think people can, you know, all afford to be more mindful about it. And I think that's why I don't discriminate with like having conversations with men about them for themselves um, and be like, talk to your talk to your partner about this. So I want to kind of circle back toward erectile dysfunction. So we talk so much in this podcast about how complex ED is, like like many other medical conditions, but certainly, you know, the, the mind body connection really just adds like a whole nother component or a whole nother layer to it all. So I know this question is probably too broad to answer like in, in general terms, but if a, if a guy's experiencing ED and doesn't seem to have any major, let's say underlying medical conditions, would you say it's worth a shot incorporating some kind of vibrating stimulation? Again, maybe that's in conjunction with a, with a, with a, cock ring or a constriction band is that something that is worthwhile that may have some yield or is there just not enough information at this point to really be able to weigh in on whether there there is a role for a vibrator in that process i would absolutely love to survey uh male participants and how utilizing a vibrator like enhance their sexual confidence because we do know that it can enhance you know perceived sexual confidence and experience in in women but we don't have, I don't think, to my knowledge, we don't have data about whether or not it can, you know, have improved erectile dysfunction. Like what I do think is that it is a hundred percent worth a shot because we do know that things like erectile dysfunction are very temperamental and are so multifactorial that really try people get, I mean, the fact that we've gotten all the way to an inflatable penile prosthesis goes to show you like how the, the lengths we are willing to go to, to keep men hard until they die. And so if you are someone who is not willing to, you know, you, you want to be proactive, you want to be encouraging good erectile blood flow, I think that using something like a vibrator is very important. And I don't just think that it should be something to treat erectile dysfunction. I don't have like data to back this, but it makes a lot of sense to me that it would help promote uh, and prevent erectile dysfunction because a lot of what happens and the creation of the you know pathology of erectile dysfunction is like a use it or lose it pathology. And so when those those small arteries get you know clogged from atherosclerotic disease or from diabetic disease or things like that, or sometimes like there it's there are definitely um, deconditioning that happens as people age and they become less sexually active. Utilizing a vibrator can absolutely help with pelvic reconditioning um, in the post-surgical setting and in just like the post-life setting. And so I think that it doesn't really matter where you are in life and what your erectile status is. It's 100% worth a shot to try a vibrator. Really, really appreciate that. And I think it's a powerful message for any person who is struggling with ED or other sexual dysfunctions. It sounds like this is a... Uh, really can't hurt to try type of intervention that could, again, play a role really in, in moving towards a viable solution for a number of sexual dysfunctions. Dr. Hurwitz, thank you so much for being with us. Um, and I hope to have you on for, a, for another episode of the future. Mark, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. For more information on today's topic and understanding how the mind impacts erectile dysfunction, please visit ErectionIQ.com. That's ErectionIQ.com.